Okay, if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Let's pray as we, we hear God's word. Father, we, we thank you that this part of the service is every bit as much worship as when we sing together. And Lord, we pray that as we hear your word now, that our hearts would be ready to receive all that you want to say to us today. We pray, Lord God, that this would be an encounter with you for each of us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to move out of the way and to not, um, not obfuscate or get in the way of what you're wanting to do today, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from the ESV. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Our passage today invites us to consider the following, the way of salvation. 
What is the way that we're saved? Secondly, it asks us to consider the mercy and the compassion that Jesus has towards sinners. Thirdly, we're to consider the spiritual and moral blindness that's common to all mankind apart from the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, we must consider Jesus' warnings to us about wealth and great possessions. And then lastly, we are called to consider the glory of God in the work of salvation. But before we come to those things, I think we need to talk about this man called the rich young ruler. Why is he called the rich young ruler? Because in Mark, we don't really hear much else other than that this is a man who ran and knelt before Jesus. Well, Luke's gospel in Luke 18, 18 tells us that this was a ruler. He was in the Greek an archon. And then we read in Matthew that he was young. So this is where we get the title, the rich young ruler. And all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all testify that this was a man who had great wealth. It was likely that he was a ruler in a local synagogue. And that was a position that was usually only held by men over the age of 40. So for, for him to be a ruler of a synagogue at that age would have been quite unusual. And some think that it was maybe because of his great wealth that he'd been given the privilege of being a ruler in that synagogue. But I think what we need to do today is we need to do a little bit of redemptive work on this young man on behalf of the rich young ruler because he gets such a bad rap. Like I've read tons of commentaries and sermons on this passage over the last few weeks and this guy gets called arrogant, dishonest, disingenuous and greedy, all kinds of names. And though there might be some truth to those statements, I also think we have to give the rich young ruler a little bit of credit. Because if nothing else, he seems to be genuinely eager to hear what Jesus has to say, doesn't he? He seems to be really keen to learn from Jesus. He, we hear that he runs to him. He runs to Jesus. Now that's not something that would have been customary for a rich person to do in those times. You, you wouldn't see a rich man ever running that's why the story of the prodigal son is so incredible because the father runs to the son. There was something about running that just was very unseemly for a rich man to do. So we see the rich young ruler running to Christ. Secondly, he kneels before him. It's a, a picture of deference of saying, you are the great teacher and I am your servant. He was clearly uh, not an arrogant man. He knelt before Jesus in the dust, in the mud, to ask his question. And his question, even his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Even the question seems to be sincere. He wasn't trying to trap Jesus. He wasn't trying to get Jesus to say something to incriminate him like the scribes and Pharisees. I want to say, first off, before we jump into attacking the rich young ruler, let's first say that this guy does a lot more than most Christians do. He does a lot more than most people who go to church do. He runs to Jesus. He doesn't sidle up. He doesn't stroll. He runs. He's eager to come to Christ. Secondly, 
Many Christians don't want to ask the hard questions that this man asks. They don't want to know these difficult questions of who is going to be saved and how. They prefer many churchgoers, not all, and certainly not in this church, but many prefer to keep a kind of more distanced approach to their Christianity. They, they prefer a, a sort of a, an association with the things of Christ, a hands-off relationship. Yeah, we, we're Christians. We go to church a couple of times a year. There's that kind of distance relationship. And their hope and their faith is put in really a kind of vague notion of the love of God. As in they think that God's so loving and kind, he would never punish my sin. Tozer said that. And he said, that's a wing and a hope. That's not biblical Christianity. In fact, there was a, a survey done, a wide survey in the States recently, asking Christians what they believed about their faith. And it showed that 63% of Christians believed that Christ was not the exclusive way to know God. So the majority in American Christianity don't even believe that Christianity is the only way, the exclusive way to know God anymore. So that shows you the state of what people believe these days. Now the question that this rich young ruler asks Jesus does reveal something about his heart. It does reveal something about the way this man thinks and the way this man believes. He says, good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now here's a man whose understanding of salvation is what? Is works based. What must I do to inherit eternal life those two verbs backed up against one another what must I do to inherit you can see the connection I inherit or I earn eternal life because of what I do that was the way that this man thought and Jesus responds at first not to his question but to the way that the man addressed him he said why do you call me good why do you call me good? No one is good except God. No one is good except God. Now some read this as Jesus is making some kind of allusion to his deity. Others, Muslims and sort of uh, non uh, divinity believing people who don't believe Jesus was actually God some will say well actually it's the opposite Jesus is clearly saying they'll say Jesus is clearly saying he's not God because he says there's none good but God but actually when we read it in context what Jesus is saying is actually aimed at unsettling the man's own self-righteousness that's what he's really saying. Spurgeon said, he wants to show the man that no one is good but God alone, so that the man may realize that all his works do not make him good and that he's incapable of earning eternal life. So Jesus isn't bringing into question his divinity, nor is he meaning to prove it. But you can read it in a sense whereby, Calvin said this, you must acknowledge that I have come from God. 
in a sense, he's putting that before the man. But the main point is, he's trying to get this guy to think, hang on a minute. I've just asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good work must I do? What kind of good man must I be to earn eternal life? And Jesus is saying, listen, no one's good but God. No one. Now, there are some that say, hang on a minute. Is Jesus actually contradicting the Bible here? Because in the Old Testament, there are a lot of people that are called righteous, aren't they? He was a righteous man. He was a man of God. He was a good man. So Jesus, what do you mean by saying there's no one good? What do you mean? Because clearly there were patriarchs, men in the Old Testament who were quote-unquote righteous. And if people can be really righteous in and of themselves, then where's the need for the cross? Where's the need for Jesus going to the cross? If we can be righteous of ourselves, we don't need him to be righteous for us. So what does Jesus mean there's no one good but God? Well, one thing that I love about the Bible, and maybe this isn't a thing that most people love about it, is that the Bible takes special care, really special care, to list the sins of even the goodest men and women. <laughs> even those like Abraham, like Moses, like, like David, who said he was a man after God's own heart. The Bible is meticulous in recording these men's slip-ups as well as their successes. David, as well as being a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer, wasn't he? Abraham, the father of a multitude, the father of covenant of faith, was a liar. Moses was a murderer. The Bible always makes record of these men's failures. The only one that doesn't get smeared ever is Christ. <laughs> Each of these men were good in a comparative sense, right? They were good in comparison to those around them, but not good in a perfect sense. They weren't good like God was good. And that's what Jesus means. There's none good but God. Romans 3, 9 and 12 says, For we've all sinned. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's God's standard of good, not our standard of good that he's talking about here. And then Jesus turns to the rich young ruler and he answers the question. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now why, why, if there's this man asking a sincere question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why doesn't Jesus just tell him? Believe on me for your sins and you shall be saved. Why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he just tell him straight he's got to have faith in Christ? Why does he point him to the law? Well, firstly, I think it has to do with the young man's question. The young man's question was a question about works, wasn't it? What must I do? And the Bible is clear that if you live according to the law, you shall live. Jesus wasn't wrong, was he? If you live perfectly according to the law, you shall have life. This is 
true. The law is not bad in and of itself. And so Jesus is pointing him to the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, not to the first few, is he? He, he points him to the second table, to all the commandments that have something to do with how you treat others. And he actually slightly rewords one. Instead of saying, do not covet, he says, do not defraud. Did you notice that? Slight difference. Do not defraud others. Maybe that's something to do with the fact that the man had a lot of wealth. Maybe he was more likely to defraud other people than he was to covet their belongings since he had so much. Or maybe Jesus knew something that we don't know. That's quite possible too about the way the man was living. Maybe Jesus knew something about his financial dealings. Either way, what Jesus does is he invites this rich young ruler, this young man, he invites him to measure himself, doesn't he, against the Old Testament commandments. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we could learn a thing or two about the way Jesus does this. Because often when we witness into non-Christians, we'll go in straight away with, listen, you need to believe on Christ for forgiveness of sins and you shall be saved. Don't we? We jump straight in with that. We don't necessarily present them with the law. We don't tell them the backstory of why Jesus is a saviour. See, Jesus is a saviour firstly from what? Yeah, from the wrath of God against sin, right? But if they don't know what sin is, how are they going to know they need a saviour? Very often in, in town, when we witness him, we had, we had an example this week where we're handing out a, a New Testament to somebody or a tract, and they'll say something like, no thanks, I'm good. Remember that this week? No thanks, I'm good. Now, we know they don't mean morally good. They're not saying, I am a good person. They're saying something more like, I'm fine. But the fact is, most people actually do think they're pretty good. And so, why do they believe that? Well, they're looking around and they're seeing, you know, well, I'm not like that awful lying politician. I'm not like that, that horrible drunkard I saw on Crime Watch. I'm not like that. So I'm good to go, right? I'm good. Now, unless those people are presented, not with human standards of goodness, but God's standard of goodness, how are they going to know they need a saviour? If we go around telling everybody they're basically good, you know, I know a well-known famous preacher, Joel Austin, said most people, 99% of people are just good. They've got a good heart. Why do they need a saviour then? Why do they need a saviour? Unless we do what Christ does and present people with God's holy standards, we actually are depriving them of the opportunity to reach out for a saviour. Because ultimately, Jesus isn't a saviour from failure. He's not a saviour from yourself. You know, he's not a saviour from poverty. He's a saviour from sin. And unless we're ready to preach the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, we deprive people of that opportunity to measure themselves against God's holy law. The young man responds and he says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All of them. Wow, quite a statement. Quite a statement. All of them I've kept. I remember there was a chat show, it was in America. Forget the, you know like Loose Women, like we have here? It was their version of that. And they were running through the Ten Commandments and talking about them. And, and these ladies were like, yeah, I'm good on the Ten Commandments. I'm good on that. 
And, uh, and the other lady was like, really? You're good on all those? Uh, do not covet? What? Do not be jealous? Oh, well, actually. Do not lie? <laughs> these, you know, no, nobody, nobody com completely holds all of these. But, but I actually don't think that the man's lying. I don't think the rich young ruler's like aware of the fact that he's broken these commandments. I don't think he's trying to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. I actually think he just is a bit naive. That's my personal view. I think he genuinely thinks that he's guiltless. It's more spiritual blindness than it is arrogance. Do you see what I'm getting at? Spiritual blindness is common to all people, isn't it? We're all born spiritually blind, and that's, I think, what we're seeing here. This man, he knows the Old Testament law, and he says, yep, I measure up to that. I've never killed anyone. I've definitely never murdered anybody. Well, there we go. That's great. I've never committed adultery. There we go. Tick on that one too. Um, Paul, actually, in Philippians 3.6, he says he's blameless, doesn't he? In accordance to the law, concerning the law, blameless. I mean, clearly the rich young ruler wasn't present at the Sermon on the Mount, though, was he? He didn't show up for that one when Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you'd have heard that, maybe his response would be different. Matthew 5, 20, 22, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. We're all born blind, in a sense, to our own sinfulness. And that's why we get these comments in town. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's because of that inherent blindness. And unless the Holy Spirit comes and transforms our heart and causes those scales to fall off, we don't see the kingdom. John 16.8 talks about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when he comes, Muslims falsely think this is about Muhammad. How you can think this is about Muhammad, I don't know. Read the thing in context, but Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's the Holy Spirit, you see, that convicts of sin. We need the working of the Spirit. And so we can do in evangelism what Jesus does. We can hold up the Old Testament holy standards of God. We can preach both the law and the gospel and in many senses we should we should do that we should hold up a standard for people to measure themselves again but none of us none of you can make someone repent none of us can make somebody convicted of their own sin it's the holy spirit that does that he's the only one that makes blind eyes see amen so even the greatest evangelist in the world can't claim any glory for themselves because they didn't bring conviction to anyone. God did that. The Holy Spirit did that. Only he can bring about repentance. What does the Bible say about repentance? It says, 
Pray that God may what? Grant them repentance. It's something that is given. Only God, only the Holy Spirit can make someone born again. So a Christian is somebody that has been convicted by the Holy Spirit. A Christian is somebody who, when they read God's laws concerning holiness, say, I need Jesus. I've failed here. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know anybody that's preaching that they never sin? The Bible says the truth's not in them. You know some Christian that doesn't think they ever need to repent? The truth is not in them. This gospel that we preach, brothers and sisters, this gospel we speak about on Sundays, it's a supernatural gospel. Did you know that? The gospel requires supernatural intervention. Because it's a gospel about the new birth. The new birth. That's not something that we can do. That's something that God must do. Just as none of you caused yourself to be born, none of you can cause yourself to be born again. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this thing, this new birth, being born again, Jesus says, is what causes us to see the kingdom. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you're actually blind to the kingdom. This Man, this rich young ruler with so much going for him was stood right in front of the king of the kingdom, staring him in the face, didn't see him, didn't recognize him. He's clearly a moral man. He's clearly a man who's hungry for the truth. But he wasn't a born again man. He wasn't born again. So let this be a challenge to us right now. You can, just, can be just like this rich young ruler. You can be morally upstanding. In fact, how many of you know non-Christians that are just very moral people? Absolutely. I know non-Christians who I would consider more morally upstanding than some of my Christian friends. And so somebody can be very morally upstanding, very eager to do right, they can even have a very good knowledge of the scriptures. They could be very religious. They could be sat in a church week in, week out for the whole of their lives. But crucially, not be born again. The bottom line is, if they are content with their own righteousness, if they don't see a need for Christ to go die on the cross for their sins, if they don't see a need to repent... If that's something they don't feel they need to be doing, then that shows us that they have not been born again. That's what concerns me so much, is that when somebody who professes to be a Christian isn't excited by the gospel, that's a worry for me. When a preacher neglects to preach the gospel week in, week out, for every week of every month, of every calendar month of the year, they don't preach the gospel. What that tells me is you don't love the gospel. And that's a worry. Donald Trump 
the former president of the United States, I'm about to quote Trump from a pulpit. He said this. I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> no, no, you don't want that. Why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honorable person, said Trump. That's the attitude of many religious people. Why do I need to repent? I'm a good person. I'm honorable. I work hard. But it's not the attitude of a born-again Christian. I love what Mark records for us next. He says, after the young man has heard Jesus say, there's no one good but God, he says, me too. But instead of Jesus chewing the guy out, the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. Jesus loves the rich young ruler. This man who stood there thinking that he was worthy of eternal life, who thinks he doesn't really need, sorry, doesn't really need Jesus. Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. I just think that's wonderful. Jesus loves you today. He loves you today. In the middle of your mess, in the middle of your muddles, he looks at you, takes all of that in, all of your misunderstandings about who you are. We've all got them. Misunderstandings, misconceptions about the world, sin, mess, muddle. Jesus looks at you and loves you. I just think that's incredible. Because the love of Christ is like nothing else. It looks at you at your worst. He looks at you at your very worst and loves you. There's no other relationship like that, is there? He even loves those who choose to walk away from him. This is a deep, deep love that Christ has for all. I want to ask us today as a church, how can we love more like Jesus? How could we become more like him in his love for others? Can we look right into people's foolishness, right at people's pride, at their misconceptions, and do as Jesus did and still love them? Can we be patient with people, be kind to them when they don't deserve it? Because that's how he loves us. Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. What was that one thing that he lacked? The man must have been confused. I've, I've got wealth, Jesus. I'm the ruler of a synagogue, Jesus. I'm in the ministry. I'm doing it well. I've just told you. I've kept all of your commandments from you. What do you mean? I lack one thing. The sad thing is this man lacked the most crucial thing of all. He lacked Christ. He lacked Christ. I think it was William Booth, the father of the Salvation Army, that said prophetically 
that in the next hundred years we're going to see a Christless Christianity. Let's pray that we don't see that in these days. Because all this rich young ruler had, he lacked the most crucial thing of all. The one thing that could genuinely give him eternal life. He lacked Jesus. I love this story in Luke 10, Mary and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on the way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had, been, had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset by many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it shall not be taken away from her. Do you have the one thing that's needful? That's the question today. We can have all else, but if we lack Christ, we lack everything. Notice as well that Jesus says to the man, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. He says, sell all you have and give to the poor. This is important. If Jesus was making a statement, as some say that he is, about being averse to Christians having private property or having money, surely he wouldn't tell the guy to give money to the poor, right? What he's saying is, the money's bad for you, but it might be good for those in need. So what can we draw from this? We can draw that it's not that having money is bad, it's actually needful. The problem is when the money has you. That's the problem. Watch this. Neither does Jesus say to the rich young ruler, sell all you have and give to me. Jesus doesn't ask him to sow a seed into his ministry. He doesn't ask for a tenth. He doesn't bring him in as a senior pledge partner to grow the ministry. And it's funny because it's sadly true. The way that Jesus handles this rich man shows us, doesn't it, the sad and kind of hilarious in a tragic way. It shows us the failure of the prosperity gospel and prosperity pastors who are obsessed with money, with possessions, with wealth. The sad fact is many of those prosperity preachers put in Jesus' place would have replaced Peter with the rich young ruler. Wow, here's this guy just displaying such an incredible attitude. He's got everything. He's worked for it. He's working hard. Peter, why don't you just come in and just look at this guy? You could learn a lot. Yeah, come on in. And just thinking about the tithe, you know, thinking about how much he could do with this young man's giving. Jesus doesn't do that. Money isn't bad. In fact, it's needful and helpful for those who need it. But, crucially, a Christian, and particularly a Christian leader, a follower of Jesus, is not to be somebody who has a love of money, who needs wealth. Jesus pinpoints where the man's heart truly was, doesn't he? This man 
clearly wanted to know, how do I inherit eternal life? But sadly, he wanted his possessions even more. It says he went away sad. And we don't know whether he came back at a later point. But Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, Jesus says to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In Mark 8, 34, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. John Calvin said, riches don't in their own nature hinder us from following God. But it's really hard for those who have great abundance to avoid being intoxicated by them. I think it's true. If we have great wealth, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means we have to be exceptionally careful that those riches and that wealth doesn't end up having us. We have to be willing to ask ourselves the question, is there anything today that I would not be willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? What would be for you too high a price? Your job? Your finances? Your family? Your reputation? What would be too high a price and would cause you to walk away from Christ? I can't pay that. I won't pay that. That's what happened to the rich young ruler. Now the disciples are confused by all this, aren't they? Because they understood wealth to be a sign of God's blessing on someone's life. So why is Jesus saying that it's going to be as hard as a, a camel passing through the eye of a needle for a rich person to enter God's kingdom? So they say, well, who can be saved then? Now before we try and escape this challenge of the rich, because many of us maybe don't consider ourselves to be wealthy, to be rich. And so we maybe don't feel like Jesus is saying that to us, that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for any of you to enter God's kingdom. But let me say this, for most of you here today, your quality of life is better than 99% of all humans who've lived to you previously. You have access to paracetamol in your cupboard, most of you. You can choose to eat at whatever time of day you want to eat. We live in a very, very wealthy society that so often we're actually blind to it. But many of us live like kings of old. So before we think Jesus isn't talking about us here as the rich, as the wealthy, yes, he is for most of us. The disciples are astonished. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Let me say this to you. Salvation, you being saved, you being a Christian, you being born again is what we're talking about, is all of God. Salvation is all of God or it's not salvation at all. We can't take any credit for our own salvation is what Jesus is saying. Because on a human level, it's impossible for us to make ourselves born again. No one can. You've got to rely wholly on the grace of God to save you. There's a phrase called sola gratia. It's from the, ref, the time of the Reformation, which we celebrate in October. And it means by grace alone. We're saved by 
grace alone. No mixture with works, no mixture with your own good deeds or righteousness, but all of God's grace. That's how we're saved. And because it's all of God's grace, all glory must go to God. And that's what we mean by soli deo gloria. Salvation is to the glory of God alone. Not because you positioned yourself in the right way. Not because the posture of your heart attracted God's favor. No. It would have been easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for God to save you. But all things are possible for him. Chad Bird is a Lutheran theologian and also a truck driver. That's why I like him so much. He says this, not on your good days or your bad days or the worst of your days was salvation up to you. It was always up to Jesus alone. And encouragingly, Christ says, truly I say to you, Peter, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters, mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions, interestingly, in the age to come, eternal life. Though we might lose a lot, brothers and sisters, in following Christ, we might lose friendships. How many of you have lost a friendship through following Christ. Some of you maybe have walked away or had family relationships crumble because you chose to follow Christ. Some of you have maybe taken a hit financially. There's a Muslim follower of Jesus a while back, a man who renounced his Muslim faith, a man called Nabil Qureshi, who went to be with the Lord, sadly, in 2017, but his own mum and dad disowned him, and it broke his heart. But Christ says, you will gain a hundredfold in this time what you lost to follow me. Koreshi gained his own family, his wife, his kids, and the body of Christ. New brothers, new sisters, new mothers who would speak and sow into his life. Just quickly though, I want you to notice how it says that though we leave brothers, sisters, mothers, or fathers for his sake, it doesn't say we'll ever inherit a father. Did you catch it? He, he says you may receive houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children, but he misses out fathers. Why? It's not an accident. He didn't forget to include fathers in the package deal. Matthew 23, 89 says, but you are not to be called rabbi, speaking to his followers you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven Jesus is very clear you I as brothers and sisters in Christ I'm not your father I'm not your spiritual father you have one father who is in heaven so this call of discipleship to go and follow leave all for Jesus it's not a call to radical poverty, though some have taken that road. It's equally not a call for get-rich-quick scheme, prosperity, okay? It's a call of carrying our cross, taking up our cross and following him. So today I want to ask the question, is there anything that's hindering you from coming to Christ? Is there one thing that's too high of a price to pay? Or are you scared? Are you worried that maybe you've lost things? Well, Christ says, don't be ashamed to pray to him for houses, 
for family, for relationships, for the restoration of those things. They're yours to inherit in this time. Equally, to be a part of the body of Christ here. These, to you, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And these are relationships God made to strengthen you and for you to be a strength to others. Let's make sure we do that, that we enjoy those benefits of being part of his family. Finally, as I close, that the last time we were in Mark, we read of these little children, didn't we, who came to Christ. They offered nothing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as well. They could offer him nothing, but they left with the blessing from Jesus, didn't they? Today we read of a man who offered much. He had so much to give, but he left empty-handed. Let's remember today that it's the empty hand of faith that receives a blessing from our God. If your hands are full of, of something else, you've got no room to receive anything from God until you lay it down. So I'm going to invite us to stand. Holy Spirit, we, we ask right now that you might come and just begin to slowly point out if there are things we've got crumpled in our palms, things that we're holding on to for salvation, maybe our own merits, maybe not even good works, but this idea that you know, we've got something that puts you in our debt. Lord, those things keep us from you. So Lord, we pray you would help unfold our palms so that we can drop whatever it is we've got held in there, whatever cherished belief we have. Lord, so that we can come empty-handed to you. Not with any merit, but simply coming in repentance and faith, believing on you for salvation. And Lord, we pray as well for restoration to come, for those who have given up much to follow you, for those who've experienced the sad breakdown in relationships, have experienced the pain and hurt of that, Lord. We pray you would bring healing even now. And the restoration of those friendships and relationships. Lord, we pray you would bless us according to your word with a hundredfold, even now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.